I am excited to have you join us. This is a special session of Theology Unplugged. We are actually going to be going through the second session. This is the actual second session of my course that I am now teaching right now on of first importance. Understanding, uh, it's a comprehensive understanding and examination of the essentials and non-essentials of the Christian faith. If you want to join us and go through this class with us, you can just by going to patreon.com forward slash C. Michael Patton, signing up, you'll get all of the information there. So let's get started. I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Theology. Theology. Unplugged. Welcome to the class. This is Essentials and Non-Essentials, a course called of first importance and we're going through an exploration of the essentials and non-essentials i'm michael Patton, and you can join us live right now on any of the devices that you're coming through but also you can join the discussion live on on uh, patreon um you have to go to patreon you have to be a member of my patreon page and then you get a a uh access to our discord server and those of you who know discord you know how to do that but it's just going to discord and looking up Credo House and then finding it there. And like I said, if you are a member of the Patreon, you can do that. We're going to have a discussion afterwards. Um, last time we introduced the subject, and this time we're going to be going through and talking about the rise of maximalism. Uh, you'll figure that out in just a minute. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you for this time. I thank you for, uh, even though it's been hard and confusing so far, so exciting to have all this technology and be able to come to so many people in this way, uh, having a video, recording it, letting other people see it. I just pray that this blesses people and helps them to answer these questions and to create a balanced philosophy on how to approach these issues. Lord, so many of us divide unnecessarily and so many of us unnecessarily never take stands. And we're, we're trying to figure out where we are to take those stands, what hills we are to die on. So bless this class, bless every student, bless everybody here and everybody that's watching this or anybody who will watch in the future. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so comprehensive exploration of the essentials and non-essentials. We're going to talk today about the development of maximalism. You may have never heard of that before. And it's, it's a term that's somewhat used. It's not like an established theological term. You'll see more of what I'm talking about as we go through. It's more a concept that fits lots of concepts. Um, we have this phrase, and you have seen this before. We have not gone through exploration of where this phrase came from. We're going to have fun doing that and trying to fi find out the exact history of it. But in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. This was This is such an important phrase, as I told you last time, right? Whenever you walk in the Credo house, the, the our, our old coffee shop, it was the first phrase that you see, because I want people to know whenever you're entering this place, you're coming into a place that has essentials, has truths that we will stand up and die for, but also we have grace 
and liberty. Understanding this basic statement that I'm going to have to defend the entire time. That there are some things that God wasn't as clear on in the Bible and in doctrine as he is about others. Um, this is Francis Turretin. Francis Turretin, he, he wrote one of the best three volume theology. Basically, he systemized all of the the 5th, 16th, and centuries. And he put it together in such a way as he's kind of like the Thomas Aquinas of the Reformation. But I, I'm so pleased whenever I read him and the insight that he has, the balance that he has that is almost out of time, meaning that it didn't mirror his contemporaries of the day. But he said, uh, not everything that belongs to the aptitude or breadth of faith must therefore belong to its necessity all truths are on, of not the same weight. Isn't that great? All truths are not of the same weight. Some have greater and others have lesser degree of necessity or importance. Necessity of believing, of unifying over. And some things have less degree of importance. Many people look at statements like this and just say, are you kidding? You're talking God's you're talking truth is God's truth and everything that God has said is from him, then it is of equal importance. Well, that's simply not true. Even God himself uh, says things such as this. One of our Christ said to the Pharisees that you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What he's talking about is the things that you fight to do and to define yourselves by are like gnats. They're little small things. They're not that big of a deal. But you swallow camels, things that are very big deals, like justice and mercy. Uh, they, were, they were separating with people left and right. We're going to talk about where this came from, where in Jesus's day people stood and what he was fighting against. And I think it'll help you to understand a little bit more the entirety of the New Testament, if we understand what happened during that period, that 400 years from the Old Testament being finished and the New Testament beginning. There's a 400-year gap, and there, we, you can study this, and you can understand it to a large degree. We have lots of literature about this time period, and some of the things that happened during this period are just extraordinary and helpful for us to understand. This is John Ott, the great theologian, and I say great, he was great, and he was one who followed by this very well. He said, while holding with a good conscience, whatever our particular understanding of the evangelical faith may be, it is not possible for us to acknowledge that what unites us as evangelical people is much greater than what divides us. So it is something that there, there's a lot more that unites Christians and evangelicals as well. Um, but really, Christians across the spectrum, whether you're Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or one of the various brands of Protestantism, and even within Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, there's a lot of different factions. We all have a great degree of faith that unites us. And in a couple of sessions, we're going to talk about the history of that and how all throughout history we can map what things are the most essential and then what things are of lesser importance. Michael Horton says, like Michael Horton a lot too, but I think this is a little bit different. Listen, he says, even matters that are not gospel issues are nevertheless essential. 
Everything that scripture proposes to be believed and practiced is essential, not equally essential, but essential. Christ is king, and we are not in any position to choose which of his decrees. Um, I'm not trying to use Michael Horton as a foil so much as I am trying to show how he does at least push from a different perspective. He says everything is essential, maybe not equally essential, but everything is essential, and we are not in any particular position to choose which decrees we consider binding. And I agree with that in some sense. I mean, I'm not in any position to say, hey, this one is the most important and this one is less important. But we are in a position whenever things from the from the standpoint of Scripture are not as clear, are not as clearly stated as being essential, and are more obscure even in history, whether or not they grew out to be essential through the Holy Spirit's movement in 2,000 years of church history— if you find both of those, as we'll see later on, if you find both of those being present, that there is obscurity both in Scripture and in history, it's not that I'm putting myself in a position or you're putting yourself in a position to decide what is essential and what is not essential. We are deciding based upon the Scripture and based upon the clarity of God. And if God wants to be less clear about things, some things than others, then he has every right to. He has every right to keep things in a mystery. He has every right to call things gnats and to call things camels. And we are, it's our job to figure out what those things are. Uh, this source is unknown. It says there is no doctrine that a fundamentalist won't fight over and no doctrine a liberal won't fight for. Uh, or excuse me. And no doctrine that a liberal, liberal will fight for. Isn't that interesting? No doctrine that a fundamentalist won't fight over and no doctrine that a liberal won't fight for. Where does this come from? Well, we've got these different terms here and where I'm going to turn back to this and define them in just a moment. But you've got within the circles of theology, you're going to be one of these type of people. Okay, You're either going to be a minimalist, a maximalist, a centrist, or a central, centralist. So um, now, now, again, uh, it's going to take defining, but we're going to go through and talk about what it, what is a minimalist whenever it comes to doctrine. What is a maximalist? What is a centrist? And what is a centralist? Okay, first, let's talk about the anchor versus boundaries of the Christian faith. This is the way that sometimes theologians will talk about this, anchor versus boundaries. And basically what you've got, maybe you can put it as, a, as you're swimming out in the ocean, and you've got a, a buoy or you've got a net. The buoy is right there in the middle. And maybe you're tied to that buoy and you can't go any further than the, than the rope will let you go out. Or you've got a net that's surrounding to where you can't get any further on these things. And theologians will talk about this in such a way. Which one are we? Are we those who find the central anchor point? And then that central anchor point, this is the key to it, that central anchor point defines how far we can go out, not a fence, not anything that we build around this to protect it, but, um, but a central anchor that pulls us back in. And maybe it is a little bit less defined because you cannot see where that anchor goes all the way out to or the rope on that anchor goes all the way out to. 
but at the same time, you are anchored, you are tethered to something. And that tethering is what we have to define. That's what a uh, person who believes in an anchor type way to approach the Christian faith compared to a one that looks like this. This is just a fence and it goes around and you can swim anywhere within this. And as long as you're inside the fence, then you're going to be okay. But you step outside the fence and then you got some problems. Now, the difficulty in this, the very first thing that you may see is here, all you have to do is define the anchor. Here, you have to define every marker on the fence, how far you can go out. So when we're talking about doctrine, what is the, is there a key doctrine that we hold to that tethers us and will always keep us safe because you can't go any further because you're tied to that doctrine, because that doctrine is of such central importance that you cannot get any further, you will not get any further, or is it something that we're going to have to go around and try to figure out every single point where you cannot cross the line, where once you cross the line, you move from being somebody who is called orthodox to someone who is being called heterodox or, or a heretic. You cross this line and you're a heretic. As long as you stay in it, doesn't matter how close you are in it, you are fine. And I think that, as we'll move through this, you'll see, I think that it's much, much better to define that central anchor point. Not just is it better, but it's, but it's something we can do. I don't think this, is, this, this uh, boundaries model of the Christian faith is possible. I think once you define it as boundaries, everybody's boundaries are going to look so different in so many areas. And you will have end up having... Factions of Christians all over the world. We've got three million, three billion Christians in the world, and uh, so many of them dividing based upon how they define one or one boundary, one fence marker here. What is your boundary on the fence marker whenever it comes to the doctrine of the end times? Is Jesus coming before the tribulation and rapturing people, or is there no tribulation at all? Well, you're going you're gonna to define yourselves by this thing. How about the beginning of the earth? It's always the end and the beginning that we fight over so much. How does everything end and how did everything begin? Well, if you're on one side, you may say the boundary is you cannot believe in evolution. And if you cross that line, you are a heretic. And therefore, from many people's standpoints, once you're a heretic, if you define it rightly, then you are not a Christian by definition. I don't think that's right. I don't think we can define it. I don't think it's scriptural to define it that way. I think it is something that will lead us wrong, not only in an unscriptural way, but something that will just tear the church apart and cause us to live in the situation where we where we do not socialize with other Christians, at least to any strong degree. We only find all of those who look and believe just like us and we find fellowship there, and then we, we divide with everybody else. And there's so many problems with that, not just simply from a practical standpoint that we, all, all of us who love Christ are dividing, but because we do not grow. Whenever you are in your silo, whenever you have this, this anchor that is, that is, or this boundary that is defining you, and this is your group, you won't cross that in order to even consider that you might be wrong on one of these boundary points. Because, of course, 
even the consideration of it itself can push you into some type of heresy and push you outside the church. Again, so many problems with the boundary way to approach this compared to the anchor way to approach this. But again, with the anchor way, you have to ask the question, what is the anchor? How do we define that anchor? And it's not as if we're going to be able to do it all today because this entire class is about defining this anchor and getting to a point where we know what, what uh, causes uh, us to have um, the unity that Christ prayed for in John chapter 17, whenever we prayed to the Father that they might be one. I believe that we are all one by virtue of of the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit by virtue of us all becoming Christian. We're all part of the same family, but we just start defining ourselves so differently that we don't fellowship with other parts of the family. And this boundary way of looking at things will cause that. Question is, like I, like I said last time, are you willing to approach this and say, I might be wrong? If you are not willing to approach this and say that you might be wrong on one of these issues of theology, even the most central issues of theology, if you say, well, I'll consider everything, but I won't consider this, well, you're not going to learn anything. You can't grow. You've got you've to be willing to sacrifice everything in order to gain everything. And you better hope that if you are staying in this boundary, if you're staying in this, this fence that you have created, uh, that, that your tradition has created, that you've created, that your parents have created for you, you better hope that you're just actually right, you know, because what if you're wrong? What if, what if the truth is somewhere else and you have not been willing to consider based upon an anchor because your boundaries have been so defined your entire life? I, I don't, uh, I'm not saying you, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and be naive, but that's what I'm talking about here. Are, are, we, are we often naive? And I'm not saying this is just with Christianity. This is with every single area on the planet. Doesn't It's not like, oh, Christians are very naive. We're all naive based upon our traditions that we've been brought up in and these boundaries we have created for ourselves and the lack of any ability to define those boundaries with, with any certainty because we're not willing to step outside those boundaries. Christians do it. Atheists do it. Every single... Every single area in life does it, whether you at your work, you have a certain way of doing things, or you know, you're, um, uh, whenever you're talking about uh, uh, something like being a mechanic and doing things a certain way, a doctor and doing things a certain way, a, a, um, a chemist doing things a certain way. You've always got to challenge your assumptions. That is not a principle of science. That is a principle of truth challenging your assumptions doubting that you, doubting yourself purposely so that you might understand where you can learn where you might be wrong if we don't start with this kind of rene descartes cartesian that's what it's sometimes called method of doubt yourself then you're not going to be able to grow you just better hope you're right and even if you're right though it's not going to matter because you're naive who wants to be who wants to have all the right beliefs for all the wrong reasons Okay, so now let's uh, move over to this next one here. And let's define what is the difference between a fundamentalist, a legalist, and an evangelical. This is a central issue. I'm going to go through kind of a history lesson. This is going to be 
be fun. If you don't like history, I'm telling you, you're going to like this because this is really, really good. It'll bring some insight into your understanding of the time of Christ. Like I said, something that happened during that 400 years before Christ and um, uh, what set up the situation that Christ found himself in with all these different kinds of people and scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and trying to understand where they come from, came from and why he talks to them the way he does and how he challenges their assumptions. He challenges their boundaries that they had set up because believe me, they had boundaries set up one way or another. Now, what is the basic difference? Let me, uh, let me talk about the rise of legalism. This could be called the rise of uh, liberalism. Either way, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> like I said, in every area, you have these three types of people, fundamentalist, liberalist, and, um, and evangelical type people. And you'll understand what I'm saying here. But think of it this way, okay? You have the Old Testament time period ending. You remember King David and Solomon were about the only two kings that did anything ha things halfway decent. Although it all started to fall apart immediately right upon Israel asking for a king at the time of Judges and then Saul coming in and then David shortly after and then King Solomon after him and how it just never really worked. That's why we have to have the ultimate king from the line of David who comes, who is Jesus Christ. But you have this time period, you know, 1,000 BC and all the way until, you know, 500, 400 uh, BC, you have this time period of the kings and the exile. And what happens is everybody followed after their own ways. They tried, they, they got their king and then they wanted to be like the other nations. They didn't want to uh, trust in God for everything. They wanted to worship other gods at the same time or trust in other gods. They looked at the other nations and thought, hey, this is great the way they do things. Well, why can't we integrate? Why can't we do the same type of stuff? Well, God said the moment that they do that, what's going to happen is that he will scatter them among the nations. He will bring in other nations to defeat them. And once defeated, then they will be scattered all over the world. But eventually he said, I will bring them back. And we're still waiting for that ultimate time when God brings everybody back. At least from my standpoint, I believe there's still a future time. That is an issue of end times, and it's not something I want to die over. But I do think that there's a, it's important to see that God promised all of this, and they were all scattered. And they never really followed the law. Remember, they got the law of Moses, and they all said, hey, we'll follow. what We got out of Egypt. You carried us on eagle's wings, and now we will do anything you ask. And God said, okay, well, here's the law. And he gave them the law of 613 statutes to where it was laid out in, uh, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You have this law that is given that goes into the time of the judges and the kings. And they never really followed the law. They never did what God told them to do. I mean, if you look at the history of the law, it's pretty amazing to see how, how, how badly it was accomplished how it was never in any sense instituted, even in the time of David, the way, best in the time of David, but the way that God had it set up and he wanted them to. Immediately it falls apart. Immediately they are not doing what God has uh, told them to do. And immediately at this point, that's one of the prophets begin to arise. And that's where you have all the prophets in the Old Testament calling on Israel to change, calling on Israel to change even though they're not going to, because this is the way that God had it set up. And it all has to do with Christ. But 
They all get scattered among the nations. Nebuchadnezzar, could the Assyrians come? They all come in and take, uh, in 722, the Assyrians come in and take Israel away. And then remember, Judah and Israel were separated at that time. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes Judah away in 586. So by 586, all of the nation of Israel, the ones that got the law, the ones that were supposed to follow the law, the ones that said, we will follow the law, we will trust in you, they didn't do it, and they got scattered. God punished them by scattering them all over the world. Now, by you know uh, around the 4th century, 5th century BC, that's whenever you have God begin to restore Israel um, to King ne or the Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah. You have the Israel being restored and um, God telling them to come back in and do what they were supposed to do from the very beginning. Now, at this time, I think Israel is kind of, a little bit shell shocked, if you. I mean, here's the, here's what happened: is they didn't believe God, and they didn't believe they would be scattered. And then suddenly, they are scattered exactly the way Bible tell the Bible tells them they're going to be. And they know God's in control. And whenever they come back into the nation from all these other nations that they've been scattered into, limping and dragging their feet, and and trying to figure out what to do. One thing that they did was they came together, and this was during what's called the Maccabean Revolts and the Hasmonean Dynasty. But you have all, let, let's put, put it this way, and this is a simplistic way of putting it, but it's really good. Uh, let's say you have all of the, all of the, all of Israel coming back together, and all these people who are like, what can we do to fix this? So they kind of have a group huddle. Everybody comes together and says, what are we going to do? You know, let's let's try to figure this out and try to make sure it never happens again. So they're all putting their arms around each other and thinking about what it is to prevent them from ever going into captivity again. Let's make sure we do what's right this time. By this time, you know, the Greeks had come in and taken over Israel. You had uh, Antiochus Epiphanes who had come in and just uh, desecrated the temple. Uh, you have the Romans transitioning in at this time as well. So Israel is polluted by other nations, by other peoples, and by other customs and cultures. And the, the, this group of people got together, and let's let's divide them into three. One group said, listen, guys. The Greeks and the Romans are here. We are out of here. We're going to take off. There's no way to worship God. We're going to get our own community, even though we have to leave Israel, even though we have to leave the temple, even though we have to leave the, the land that God promised to Abraham. We're leaving this place, and we are going to follow the law outside of, of uh, the Greeks and Romans. And so one group goes out into the wilderness, and they put together their own community and begin to follow. We, we have so many writings from this group. It's, it's amazing, but we know exactly how they lived and what they thought and, and who they were. That's one group. I'll tell you who they were in just a moment. And then you had a second group of people. Who, there's two more left. They say, well, li listen, I mean, the Greeks and the Romans are here. And you know what? They, they bring some kind of cool stuff if you think about it. And maybe this is what God wants us to do. Maybe God wants us to integrate with the Greeks and Romans. I mean, if they are having the Olympics and the bathhouses and all these different things brought into our city, let's not get too out of bent out of shape about this. Let's just join in with them. Let's do whenever when in Rome, when in Rome, what is the saying? Do as the Romans do. And this is just exactly what the this group thought. 
Let's integrate. We'll keep God. We'll keep we'll keep uh, our our nation. But at the same time, let's not discount all the benefits and all the awesomeness that this nation brings in. Let's integrate some of it. So these were the integrationalists. You had the the hardcore separationists who got out of town. You had the hardcore integrationalists who said, well, let's just do as the Romans do. And then you had one last group who said, no, no, no. Here's what we're going to do. This whole this whole group at the beginning was called the Hasidim. Not the Hasidim as we know it today, but the Hasidim from back then. This whole group, uh, there's one left, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. You guys leave. You guys integrate, but we are staying within Israel, and we're going to do everything right. And what we're going to make sure that we understand how to do everything perfectly and never mess up, never do anything wrong again. But what we're going to have to do in order to protect that which is most important is make sure nobody can get through the walls of our mind, the walls of our morals, the walls of our thought ever again. And so we're going to build these walls. And we're going to make sure on every single point, we never, we never let anything get into our, our, not literally, but figuratively, the walls of our morality by building bigger and stronger walls further and further out. And so this group got together and they began to put together all the laws and the, the details of how it is that they are to stay in Israel, even though the Romans are there, but yet say, stay separate from all that the Romans are doing, every single little thing. They, we are not going to follow them. And so that, that is where you have a third group. Now, the first group, if you remember, the ones that were separationists, these were called the Essenes. The Essenes were those who, who left. Um, I can get back to this. The Essenes were those who left Israel and went out into the Dead Sea community. You've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are, are um, scrolls that we have found from this community because, like I said, they preserved their religion very well up in these caves. And so the Dead Sea was uh, where the Essenes went. And then the integrationalists, these people that stayed in, and those of you who don't read the Bible much or you never read the Bible that much, you, um, I want you to remember these terms, but you have the Sadducees. The Sadducees. Well, Christ talked a lot about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You'll see that over and over again in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Well, the Sadducees were those people who said, hey, listen, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Let's integrate. We can, we can morph and we can mold our own religion to where it works with the Greeks and the Romans. And that's why the Sadducees, you see them compromising all the time, changing their essential doctrines or or whatever it is, integrating their beliefs along with the beliefs of the culture of the day. This is just a typical type of, of approach to these things. Uh, and then finally, you have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were those, you've heard a lot about the Pharisees, probably if you've read the New Testament. Christ is always talking with the Pharisees. And as a matter of fact, the Pharisees may have been the closest to what they were supposed to be, but at the same time, they were also one of the furthest. And why was that? Because they wanted to protect their religion so much, they built walls around themselves to where every small, minute point of the law, every gnat, remember you strain out gnats and you swallow camels, every gnat was built up to protect their religion, their institution, to where so much these walls got built up 
that their entire religion became defined by these walls. Let me give you an example. If um, uh, you, you've read the Ten Commandments, you know that one of the commandments is you shall uh, keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath holy. Well, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? What is the principles of it? Well, from the, from the Pharisee standpoint, these ones that were inside Israel trying to protect it, building walls, they said, well, listen, let's, I mean, let's just, we don't have to try to figure out what the central point of keeping the Sabbath is. Let's just build enough walls around it to where whatever the central point is, we can protect it. And so if it's not to work on Sunday, uh, on the Sabbath or Saturday, uh, for the Jewish people, let's make sure nobody works. And so they had to define what it meant to work. Oh, I mean, to such great degrees to where you would have Pharisees, these people, who would say you cannot spit on the ground on the Sabbath, least your your foot rub across it and it be considered plowing. I mean, th I'm serious. So if you spit on the ground, you're going to accidentally plow and therefore you break the Sabbath. See this wall going up all these gnats that christ said you swallow a gnat um you strain out a gnat but you swallow a camel they're so worried about how much they tithe if the if the bible says that you're supposed to give some of your money to god you're not trying to trying to figure out the principle of it you're not trying to figure out uh whether or not this is just being a generous heart and making sure your heart is always generous and then going based upon that it's uh okay if it is a tenth Let's take a tenth of everything, even our salt and pepper, where we're get, putting salt and pepper on our food, uh, mint and cumin. You would put this on, and then they would separate a tenth of their salt and pepper. That's how bad it got with these Pharisees inside of Jerusalem trying to protect it. And so you have this massive amount of, I mean, it's just Christ is coming in to a rise, not only of legalism, but of of libertarianism, people who just didn't know how to balance themselves during this time. And so what does this look like for us? What is the what is the relevance? Well, the relevance is very, very simple from the standpoint of talking about essentials and non-essentials. We have it today. We have in America today, in the church today, doesn't matter whether you're America or not, every single institution, every single belief, every single uh, job, every single um, anything you're talking about at school or anything, they have these types of people, those ones that are Pharisee-like, protecting themselves, the ones that are libertarian, the Sadducee-like, and some that are Essenes that separate. But you have this in the, in the church today. You have people who are very, very legalistic and making sure like the Pharisees, that we do not break any laws. Therefore, whatever it is the culture does, they drive a V8, we don't drive a V8. If they play cards, we don't play cards. If they go to movies, we don't go to movies. If they dance, we don't dance. Everything. I mean, and, and whenever I was on missionary trips, it was, it was one of the most amazing things because this is what you almost always saw. People scared to death of the culture and automatically defining the culture. Every single thing they do is evil, which is wrong. 
I mean, God God created culture. Culture in and of itself is amoral. It is not neither good nor bad. It's just the principles sometimes that are expressed in that. So, I mean, driving a car, using electricity, whatever it may be. You have the separationists, some of the hardcore separationists, who literally do go build towns for themselves in America to separate from the rest of the world and do not engage the rest of the world. And then you also have those who stay in, but make sure... You don't do anything that these other people do. I mean, to go so far as sometimes it seems laughing at a joke, you know, or telling a joke in church or telling a certain kind of joke. Then all of a sudden, well, you've crossed the line there because we, we know they've got all these walls. But you also have the, those who are like the Sadducees who who integrate everything and don't even take care or concern to try to understand whether or not there is a distinction and what it is that what are the things that we don't that we die for and you have it kind of looking like this if you have that chart that I'm, i've been working on the one that we're building out this entire time you have it kind of looking like this notice here you have liberalism and i'm not talking about liberalism from the standpoint of a political party i'm talking about liberalism from the standpoint of as a uh as a way of thinking now it applies to political parties as well as we see but everybody ends up even in liberalism, being some type of legalist. Let me tell you, explain why. You have liberalism in the church today, which basically may say, hey, listen, the center circle here, um, we don't have anything but one thing. You know, one doctrine you have to believe. In order to go to our church, in order to fellowship, in order to be a, called a Christian in our church, and we us say you're okay, just make sure you love each other. That's kind of the idea. All you need is love. And notice, there's not anything in the center circle except for that. And then as you go out, the outer circle, the things that are less important, they become the things that you place everything in. Well, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about the end times? What do you believe? It doesn't really matter. It's all on that outer circle of not important, uh, of pure speculation. Who really cares? As long as we're centered around that middle thing of loving each other it doesn't even really mind it doesn't matter whether you worship christ or buddha or whoever else you can find fellowship of this church that's that's the sadducee that's the liberal way of approaching things and that's the way that the, this type of mentality will look at the essentials and non-essentials and then you also have just the opposite here's the fundamentalist fundamentalist who basically put everything in the center and the center is what is most important. And basically their mindset is, as long as I get everything in the center, I'm protecting it. And I'm going to build walls around it. And it doesn't matter what the doctrine is. It doesn't matter what the belief is. There can be no room for separation, no room for division, no room for compromise. Because we know it all. The more you know God, the more you, you fellowship with him, the more you will know exactly on every area what it is that he wants and what it is we should believe. And there's not one thing that's more important than another or one thing that's less important than the other. They're all of equal importance. So your chart may look like this. You got everything in the center with very few things. Notice only one thing on the very far outside of the liberalist or the fundamentalist uh, chart. Now, I just, I just drew this out. I'm not telling you what, what thing that is but it's just illustrative so that you know what I'm talking about. And then finally, I don't mean to uh, jump on a tradition and say, hey, this one is the best tradition. All I'm doing is trying to define evangelicalism from what it traditionally or historically was, what it was supposed to be.
And so you have the liberal, the rise of the liberalist and the fundamentalist in America in the 19th, late 19th century and the early 20th century. And by the 1920s, 1930s, with the Scopes monkey trials and all this division that was going on at that time, you had these lines pretty well set. You were either a fundamentalist, you were either with us or against us, and the liberals were the same way. Uh, they weren't any more inclusive because you can't be a fundamentalist and be a liberal. So you have to believe the way they do on those things. So both of them, in some sense, were very rigid, very fundamentalistic, if you want to use that term that way, meaning rigidity. Both are very rigid because both have their requirements and you cannot deviate from those requirements. Either you accept everything or you accept or you uh, you accept nothing as being essential or you accept everything as being essential. And this is whenever you have the rise of evangelicalism. And this this ebb and flow comes out of history over and over and over again. Therefore, this chart we're looking at, this essentials and non-essentials, has an ebb and flow. Not in and of itself it has an ebb and flow. Not that it's supposed to have an ebb and flow, but throughout history, that's what you're going to find, is you're going to find this dialectic that goes back and forth um, that that uh, defines things based upon the, the conflict that you are in and how that conflict plays out. Evangelicalism came on the scene. And if you think of people uh, like Billy Graham, Billy Graham was one of the primary leaders of the evangelical movement who at the time in the early 1940s was asked by the World Council of Churches, the World Council of Churches looked like this. The World Council of Churches were very liberal. The World Council of Churches basically said it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you love each other, then you can come to our type of church. Every denomination has this type of church, whether you're Methodist or Baptist. Everybody has their liberals and everybody has their fundamentalist. fundamentalist. Um, even within the Catholic Church, you have this massively. And so uh, you have the World Council of Churches coming to Billy Graham and saying, hey, will you come preach at our church? Now, this was scandalous because they were asking him to come preach at a church that looked like this, that was a liberal church. And here's what happened was these guys said, what are you going to do, Billy Graham? I thought you were one of us. I thought you stood up for truth and you believed in the fundamentals. Remember, the fundamentals, that the, the first time that term was used it was actually a good way to use it. It was it was actually very balanced, but it became more and more rigid, just like everything does throughout time. And so here's the fundamentalist coming up to Billy Graham, looking over his shoulder and saying, I heard you got invited to the World Council of Churches to preach. Are you going to go preach to a bunch of those people? They're all, they're all bad. They're all liberal. And Billy Graham actually accepted and went to go preach and basically got kicked out of the fundamentalist movement. And he said something that was so important at the time. He said, I intend to go preach everywhere and anywhere so long as the gospel is not hindered and they let me preach what I want. And so Billy Graham saying, I'll go to these people just like this. Of course I will. I mean, are you kidding? I mean, they need the gospel just as bad as anybody else. They're not telling me what I can and can't preach. So therefore, I'm going to associate with them. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be scared of them. I'm not going to separate. And so evangelicalism basically started as a movement or became a movement at this time that said, we are going to have a balance between the two. We're going to, you know, understand that there is, there are things that are absolutely essential that we do die for, but we're also going to understand that there's some things we don't know. There's some things that aren't as important. There are some things that as Paul, as Jesus said, uh, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
There are camels and there are gnats. Paul said to the Corinthians, I delivered to you that which is of first importance. Therefore, those other things he didn't deliver at the very beginning because they were not as important. It can't mean any other thing. So you're going to have to have a balance between these two. So you have the maximalist, the minimalist, the minimalist, the maximalist, the centrist, and the centralist. And they, the mac, minimalist, of course, say, let's believe minimal doctrines. That's liberalism. Maximalist says, we'll believe everything. The centrist, and this is, this is key because it's, it's important to, to understand the difference here. The centrist comes in and says, hey, let's compromise, you know, a, a tit for tat. And let's not let's not define what the essentials are. Let's just find some place in the middle that we both compromise and meet. That is not good either, because basically in the end, you do not have anything that everything's so watered down and so so uh, agglomerated. It doesn't even look like it originally did. So you don't have essentials or non-essentials anymore. So the centrist is not good either. But the centralist is kind of the way I'm looking at this from the standpoint of of the anchor. What's the center? Let's find the center, the anchor that holds us in the middle and keeps us from going outside the boundaries. Let's find those doctrines that are the most important. That is the centralist. And whenever you look at this here, I, I'm not going to go through this completely. I probably shouldn't even put this up here because there's so much to it. It's so, so busy and confusing. But this is the definition of evangelicalism. Notice here, I'm just going to define a few things on the outer edges. You have orthodoxy, right belief. And then you also have orthopraxy, right practice. And then also orthopathy, which is a right attitude. So all of these things mixed together is what the evangelical tries to keep. In the middle, middle, you notice you have Christ, and it says Christocentric. Christ is the center. Christ is the anchor. That cross right there looks kind of like an anchor to me. It is the anchor that holds us together. And all these other things, we find, we find not that they're not important, but we have to wrestle with them. Then on the outside here, it says, in essentials, unity, in all things, charity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. That is the evangelical maximum. That is the evangelical creed. That is what we're supposed to be. I, I realize not even every evangelical either knows this or even practices it anymore, but this is what we were meant to be. Um, and really, I mean, Charles Swindoll says this, listen, I, I love this. You know, I'm always going to quote Charles Swindoll at some point because he was so influential in my life in all of these areas. I know he's not a, he's not known as a great theologian, but the way he thought, the way he had the orthopathy, the the way he had the right emotions and how he approached things absolutely revolutionized me in so many ways. But he said this one time during a sermon. I can't tell you exactly where it was at. He said this many times. He says, if you are not wrestling in a wrestling match with whether you're being too legalistic or too liberal, you're probably not in a good place. Or if you are having a wrestling match, uh, you're probably in a good place. So basically what he's saying here is, in the, how many areas is this true in? I mean, seriously. I mean, it's so easy to go one direction or another. It's really easy to become a liberal. It's really easy to become a fundamentalist. It's really hard to stay in the middle and wrestle with these things. Okay, so that is the conclusion. If you guys want to discuss this, again, we're going to be in in my um, uh, in the Discord server, on the Discord server, and we're going to go through a few questions. So thank you for joining us.
And uh, we'll pick this back up again next Tuesday and continue this excellent, fun class.